Welcome to the Global Band Room, a podcast about bands and musicians across the world. My name is Keith Kelly, and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode, I sit down with musicians to talk about their stories and bands and how they're making an impact in their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at globalbandroom.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom. All of the Global Bandroom podcasts are brought to you by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Find out how you can travel beyond expectations at mykatrip.com. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Global Band Room. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome someone today that I haven't had the opportunity to speak to in person until today, but is someone that I actually reached out to 11 years ago for the first time. Uh, He is the Director of Bands at the University of Arizona, Fred Fox School of Music. He's the Chief Guest Conductor of the Beijing Wind Orchestra, China's first professional wind ensemble. And he's an educator, clinician, and author of a guide of the top 100 works in grade four, five, and six. And how I got to know him, he's a former podcaster, and we'll get talking about that today as well. Please welcome Chad Nicholson to the Global Band. Hey. And Chad, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Keith. I really appreciate it. This is pretty cool. You have you have outdone me, sir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've certainly I've, I've put out more podcasts at this stage over over the last while. Um, but but it is true. The first time that I uh, ever listened to a band podcast was back in uh, I think I caught on to it in 2011 uh, actually mm-hmm. uh, as you were just finishing up your one year run of the podcast uh, and it was called Wind Bands of Every Flavor it was um and uh, <laughs> it um, we talked just before the show before we started recording and it's amazing the amount of things that are on those I think 11 episodes mm-hmm. that I you know put me on to a new path uh, I mean 2010 was like a really formative year for me uh, I was just after starting to conduct a community band here mm-hmm. I was investigating what repertoire was available for, you know I was a military musician so if it was outside of Sousa and Kenneth Alford I you know and national anthems <laughs> I wasn't really playing much um and uh, and and I you know I checked out these new things called podcasts. You let's just can we start at the podcast? I know like it's such a small part of everything that I've just mentioned that you do, but um, I mean that was you were onto podcasts at a very sort of early age. We all started podcasts in 2020, you know, because we had nothing else to do. <laughs> yep. You were there in what 2010, 10 yeah. years behind the rest of us. Yeah, uh, so it actually goes back to so I grew up uh, in Oklahoma uh, in the United States. I actually grew up on a racehorse ranch in Oklahoma, and I and uh, and you know me and my two brothers were the uh, horse waste management technicians, uh, which <laughs> got me ready for band in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, and and so in this small town, you know, it was I got to be a teenager. I wanted to get a job. And, you know, uh, my dad was pushing me to, you know, he wanted me to do something outside. Now, Oklahoma is very hot and humid in summer. He's like, yeah, go, go work on the, on the road crew. You'll make good money and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I like to be inside. And so I found out about an opening at a country music uh, radio station for a disc jockey. I was 16. I didn't know anything about this. And they were so desperate. They needed someone who uh, was on uh, uh, the Saturday and Sunday, uh, five, five o'clock in the morning person. Uh, so they needed <laughs> no. someone to show up at 4.30, turn on the big, you know, the big power switch. It was a very old place. It was built before FM radio even existed. So it's all very old school. And I was like, I'm 16. I want to be on the radio. Let's do this. 
And it was kind of this open season. It was it was it was not a great choice on their part, but it was great for me uh, for about three months uh, because I got to go on and and see what that was like. And you know, I, I was a sixteen year old brain says, "Hey, everything is funny that I say, uh, so I'm going to say it." Uh, and I, so it, I guess, uh, does the adult brain is what I'm finding. Uh, and uh, so I did that job, uh, and that kind of got me going. Uh, and then, uh, so I kind of had that idea of, I really liked, I liked engaging and, and I like attention and, you know, there's no, as, nobody can tell me to stop talking. Do. What's that? As band directors do. As we do. That's what we do, you know? <laughs> and, and actually, so then that, that, that led to, uh, I, when I was a band director in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the time at Indiana, Purdue, Fort Wayne, uh, which is, it was, a, a affiliated with Indiana university, which is where I got my doctorate. So there I understood the curriculum But Fort Wayne. I was like, okay, I need to do something that allows me to feel like I'm, uh, well connected with the modern repertoire with the, the creators of that, um, to also dig into rep. I've always had this interest in repertoire and, and my ignorance of it. And it's kind of been this lifelong uh, drive to, to be less ignorant about our repertoire and really not just our repertoire, but, but you know, transcriptions and the repertoire of other uh, media. Um, because uh, um, as I get progressed through my career, I, I, I more and more see that we are extremely connected. And, and so, you know, I'm trying to always look for new ways to bring that together for the students so that they can get see those connections earlier than I did. And so the podcast was really mostly for my own edification and satisfaction and podcasting. I, I didn't really know much about it. I had no idea what I was doing. I actually had to, to do the uh, phone interviews. Like this was in the day of like a telephone and I had to put a little recorder on the phone receiver no way. Um, that's the that's the way you were doing this. Yeah, it was very much like 1987 spy movie. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> yes. And 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 you know, figure out how to edit. I had never edited anything in my life. Um all I knew was, you know, I I knew I could take out with this fantastic new software, you know, I don't even remember what it was. I could take out like if I said like too many times or uh too many times, I could sound so much smarter and smoother. They just take you know, that out. I started doing that when we when, when when I started the podcast back in in March 2020. I was editing myself all the time like that. I don't bother doing it doing it anymore. Anyone it that so listens to time. it probably yeah, you know. And I think podcasts have actually changed how we listen to people as well. Mm-hmm. I think we're much more open to the idea of people being natural. Uh, right. In fact, those radio voices are kind of they're they're out of touch with the podcast world now. I think sometimes yeah. those those very professional radio voices. I think we're much more open to the idea of that casualness. So yeah, man, uh, I don't edit those ums and as as any of my listeners know. <laughs> yeah, it was it took me so long to edit, and that was one of the reasons why I just couldn't keep going with my job, you know. Uh, but uh, I I did use you know I was still accessing a little bit of that old radio voice. You know, the, the radio was, was America's country, KBIX 1490 AM radio in Muskogee. <laughs> and it was that kind of thing. And they would, the, the program director would tell me, you know, you, know, you got to say Muskogee in Muskogee. I'm like, okay, just like that. And now that was, that sounds so like 1920s, you know, or, you know, and they're rounding the bases, you know, that kind of thing. One of the most exciting parts of any journey is the anticipation of the adventure to come planning your route, 
investigating the attractions and researching the local culture. But sometimes, as music educators, it's easy to get swept up in the mountain of work it takes to bring your students on that next band trip. And that joy and anticipation can be lost, or worse, can turn into dread. With over 28 years of experience, Kaleidoscope Adventures has a world-class team of travel and performance experts ready to make this process not just easy, but exciting, leaving you and your students to continue doing what you do best and looking forward to an experience of a lifetime. When you're ready to travel beyond expectations, contact Kaleidoscope Adventures at mykatrip.com. And you've been on a, a career journey since that podcast as well. Uh, you, you're yeah. in, in a new position in Arizona. Tell me about moving to Arizona and, and taking up that position uh, there. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, prior to this, I was uh, the one ensemble conductor at the University of Delaware. And um, that, you know, that is, I've lived on both coasts. I taught high school on the West Coast in Beaverton, Oregon, just outside of Portland. It was a brand new high school. I got, got to write the, the school song and all that stuff. And then uh, coming over to East East Coast, you know, it was uh, uh, it's a completely different scene. It's really interesting now that I've lived basically everywhere. I think except the, the the South, the deep South of the United States. But the band scene is is very different in many many ways. Um, but it's funny to to see some of the exact same things happen globally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. But basically, uh, I saw the position open up. I knew about the recordings. Uh, University of Arizona had done several important recordings of David Maslanka music. Uh, and um, so I thought, well, let me check this out. And it was one of those things where I didn't really know if I was going to like it or not. I had lived for a couple of years in New Mexico, so I knew I enjoyed the Southwest, the whole Southwest vibe. Uh, and I came out here and it was one of those things where, you know, I did the, I went through the interview process and did everything exactly the way I would do it. There was no, I had no sense of like, well, I better act one way or the other. I was like, this is what you're going to get. And for some reason they wanted it. And so, um, uh, they offered me the position and I came out here and it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, the students are, uh, really the best part. Uh, just like any job, I think that we do. I mean, that's the students are the best part. They're really, really terrific students. And Tucson is kind of a funky and 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 quirky town. You know, I, uh, we have, gosh, fifty or sixty, you know, murals just around downtown. It's just a very um, art centric place to live. Uh, so if it weren't one hundred and fifty degrees in the in the summer, you know, I think it'd be perfect. Uh, but you know, I came here and everyone said, well, don't worry, it's a dry heat. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. It's a dry heat. And I'm like, I think you cook a, you cook a turkey in a dry heat. I, I think, it, <laughs> I think it, it'll still cook you. Um, but We, we, we don't, it, we don't it's, have it's such a thing as a dry heat in Ireland, Chad. I can tell you that. <laughs> we it's don't have much heat. dry and we don't have much heat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, really, sign me up. Let's go. <laughs> we have uh, a mid-cool uh, damp is what we have. <laughs> That's right. It keeps uh, your skin moisturized, you know, exactly. youthful. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a uh, 62. Uh, you, you'd never believe it. Um, <laughs> and I'm 22. <laughs> Sorry to say so, I'm a walking piece of leather. 
<laughs> Tell me about the, the program at Arizona. Uh, you're director of bands there. Um, uh, you know, for many people around the world, um, you know, I think when, when we say like director of bands, uh, you know, I think people within the US will know what that means and will sort of have an idea of what the program might be like. Uh, but for people around the world, sometimes we're not sure exactly what that means. Uh, director of bands, what type of bands? How many bands? What, what, what does the, the program look like as a whole? Um, yeah, so at uh, University of Arizona is a fairly uh, standard uh, model of what a state university in the United States uh, would have for a band program. Um, you know, generally there's there are uh, several directors, a director of bands, an associate director of bands, an assistant director of bands. Uh, there would be um, a staff of graduate students who often work, depending on the school, but who often uh, work with the marching bands, the athletic bands, basketball, volleyball, uh, pep bands, and then also with the concert groups. So here we've got, you know, all of the athletic bands and then as well as wind ensemble and wind symphony and symphonic band. Um, you know, we have all campus groups where it's non-audition for anyone on campus. Um, uh, we have the music major groups, chamber winds. Um, and then uh, uh, as part of that, it's really as the director of bands, I don't, I don't, think that I tell the other folks what to do as much as I'm kind of this coordinator, making sure all the pieces are moving, uh, making sure that things are working well together. And then also um, speaking on behalf of the area, uh, speaking, uh, you know, that as band directors, as I'm sure around the world, you know, we are constantly in the position of having to advocate for our programs and for our students and for the needs. And that is, that's okay. I think that it, that's some people when they start in the career, they're surprised by that. They, you know, I hear younger teachers say, talk about how, you know, how draining it is that, that they have to do all this other stuff, but actually teaching seems like a very small percentage of the job. And that is true, uh, except for the fact that it, we all have to say, well, being a good problem solver allows us the luxury of having that part of the job. And, you know, there, there are a lot of jobs where you don't get to stand in front of a, a group of people and wave a magic wand and have them do stuff, uh, you know. And so it's we're very, very lucky, I think, that way. So my job is to be primarily the coordinator. I teach the graduate uh, conducting students. So we have this year two doctoral and one master student uh, and run the graduate conducting studio. Uh, and then I do a lot of recruiting for the School of Music. Um, I host events. Uh, I do lots of work, uh, you know, out in schools. And, and I'll do virtual clinics like this for groups uh, all across the country, uh, things like that. So and that's essentially uh, the, the nuts and bolts, I think, of, of what the job is like. You mentioned hosting events then as well, and and one yeah. of the events that you're, you're you're hosting, and it's something that I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about, but because it, again, it's one of these things that I think uh, is understood, um, you know, among educators in the U.S., band educators in the U.S., what mm -hmm. an honors band is. Um, but sometimes, actually, I'm not sure that necessarily we we understand that in Europe because it's a very different concept. A lot hmm. of the universe, so so the University of Arizona is hosting a, 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 an an honor band next. Uh, February. Right. What exactly is that? Why does the university do it? And um, yeah, what what's the what are the goals of putting an honor band together like that? Um, well, uh, honor bands, you know, they happen. It's it's an interesting thing. They they happen. They can happen at a at a very small regional level 
where, you know, just the schools, maybe in a, even one school district, maybe there are three high schools, they get together and say, hey, you know what, let's audition uh, our students and the top students form one band. And we'll bring in a guest conductor and they'll spend, basically you spend I don't know, two days uh, rehearsing and then do a concert uh, together. Um, there are uh, some really great benefits to, to doing it just the regional level. And then there's the state level, which is it gets to be very competitive. You know, all the states and the in, or all the schools in the state are sending their best students and they audition uh, for the university. Um, uh, a couple of things that I like about it is it frees us up from any boundaries. So we have had students participate from Massachusetts and New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, who will come down and do it. And basically, what, uh, unlike a lot of honorments, I've guest conducted at a lot of them, but at University of Arizona, uh, I made the decision to conduct them myself because uh, for a number of reasons. One is... Um, why would I, you know, I always go into these other, uh, at these other universities and I say, Hey, University of Arizona, it's a great school. And I'm standing in someone else's school, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I want these students to be thinking about it. So, you know, why don't I, my, my whole, uh, stance on it. And I always tell potential like recruits or high school students who come and visit that they should, no matter where they go, they should, if they're looking at a, at a university to attend, they should demand or ask for, uh, an authentic experience. Can they sit in classes for a day? And, and essentially, I try to run that group exactly as I conduct the, the University of Arizona groups. And then they know, I, I tell them, anyone can make a brochure and hand it to you. And like, I can hand you a brochure that has pictures of the University of Arizona. I didn't make this brochure. I had nothing to do with this brochure, but there you go, or website. Um, but if you sit in the room with us, um, and I'll bring in, I'll have my assistant, the uh, associate director come in and do some work so they know what he's like. We engage them with all of our applied studio faculty and master classes so they know exactly what they're like. And part of it is, I mean, we would love for this, the students to want to come to University of Arizona, but if they don't, then that's okay too, because they're basing that on information. It's an informed decision. Um, and, and it's a service. It's not like, it's not something we make a bunch of money off of or anything like that. It's a, it's a basically a way for us to get together, but also we bring the directors together and that is uh, very meaningful for directors and me to get to talk to them, talk shop, because a lot of us, you know, a lot of band directors, we're kind of on an Island, wherever we are, uh, we're the only person who really understands what we do and, and what our needs are and the challenges we face. So it's just a great way for everyone to get together and chat and, you know, connect a little bit. Um, it's a, it's fun. And the students seem to really enjoy it. Uh, they spend a couple of days. Uh, one of the best things is you might have, you know, uh, high schools that are very competitive in American football, American football, uh, <laughs> and, and you know they're they're very competitive. Oh, we this school or this school, and then they'll sit right next to each other uh, in this band for two days, and they have one common goal, and there's no scoreboard. And I always tell the parents, all these parents come to the concert, and I always point this out to them is that um, we just spent two days of people who normally would be in 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 the grandstands of their football stadium yelling terrible things at each other uh, just because they go to a different school sitting here and everybody really wants this one thing to happen and they're willing to work together to do it. And there's no scoreboard that tells us we won or lost. And it's, and it's funny. I always have the parents come say, yeah, that was really interesting. Or principals who attend administrators. Yeah, that was really interesting. I'm like, yes, now stay with it. Like what else can we do? Um, it's supposed to be something that shows another path. And sometimes it works, but it's not enough, honestly. 
um, it's still it's it's still a battle to have people. And I think that this is something that hope will help our society in some way down the road is people to just understand that we can actually I could sit next to someone who is from a different country, a different state, has a different religion, a different socioeconomic background. But for two days, we're on the same team because of music. And I can find a lot in common with that person. And I always point this out at the concerts. It's like, maybe there are other things that we could be doing this for. Not to, not to tell people that, you know, you know, you should do this. I'm going to preach to you, you know, you should do this. But it's something I think about a lot. Is that, you know, it, I don't think we're really as different as we think we are, at least in the United States. And you, you've had that experience of working with with international groups as well i mean i mentioned at the top of the podcast you're the chief guest conductor with the beijing wind orchestra and that's one of many international opportunities you have mm-hmm. it seems to center around a lot of uh, asian countries mm-hmm. um tell me a little bit about that um uh, that work that you've done and what brought you to to china yeah i started going to my first trip to asia a former student of mine was teaching in shanghai uh, at a at a inter, inter, international school, and he invited me out uh, for an honor band, and like an honor band in China, I have no idea what to expect. And and I was right, uh, I did have no idea what to expect, and and every day was a new day, uh, and and it was really interesting. And so as these things go, you know, when you do one thing, sometimes it leads to other things, and. Um, the uh, Beijing Wind Orchestra is this, it's a professional group. Um, they're, you know, it, and, and that's its own different thing. A professional group in China uh, is a different type of thing to get used to. Um, the, the language barrier, I, I've tried my very best and I still am working hard on learning Mandarin. Um, it's, it's a challenge. I'm, I get better at it every time I do it. Um, and I've learned to say the things, kind of the the quirky things that I like to say, uh, like, you know, if someone plays something well, I'll say, oh, that's delicious. So I learned how to say delicious, you know, in Chinese. And the first time I said it, they all, they all just cracked up. They couldn't believe I just said that. <laughs> but I have to be careful because you shouldn't just say things, you know, that you don't really know the meaning of because then you end up going down the wrong path. And it still can be funny. Um, well, can I ask you about that a little bit, actually? Because <clears throat> Do language barriers exist there? Even if, even with the translation there, like turning a a taste uh, sense into a, a description of what you're looking for musically, is that something that works when you're working with a with a Chinese group like that? It it, it worked in that it was something they didn't expect and thought was very odd and funny. Okay. Um, did it did it really convey the the sensibility I wanted? I'm not so sure. Mm. Uh, there was someone there to tr- there's someone there who will translate for me. And the first time I took advantage of that. But the problem is, like many band directors, you know we got to go 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 go. And it's and it completely threw me off my momentum to say, um, you know, trombone softer at letter C, and then stand back, wait for the translation. And then set and go. Um, I, I couldn't stand it, so that's it. Drove me to at that one when I finally just said to the translator, "No, no, sit down." I just started using. It made my nonverbals magnified, you know, you know, and I was jumping all around the the, the hall and off the podium, and um, and and modeling through uh, my voice a lot more. Mm. Um, it probably forced me to be, you know, more efficient than ever because I couldn't stop and tell some really interesting anecdote about this piece, you know, and how I, <laughs> well, when I did this back in blah, blah, blah. Um, it was a lot of jumping around. And I, I remember things we did, uh, one year we did a lot of Gershwin 
And there was very little context for playing in a jazz style with the, the players. And so just teaching um, swing um, was, ex- was, it was very, very interesting. Uh, it was very, uh, uh, it was a lot of singing, a lot of modeling. And even then um, they, they had to, they, they were approaching it in this intellectual sensibility and mm-hmm. an academic sensibility as I would, if I had, had were trying to play something that I had mm-hmm. no context for. Um, and they got closer and closer. Uh, I remember I, I asked how I asked Trump to do a shake, you know, and I'm a Trump, trumpet player reformed, you know, I play this stick now, but, uh, you know, and just teaching them that how it's different from actually doing a lip slur of a third, you know, and, and mm. things like that, it, it, it threw an unexpected challenge in there, but it was fun and they really enjoyed it and they had a, a, a lot of fun. I guess we, 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 we all teach in so many ways that we probably take for granted. We like, I, I know I teach with a lot of analogy. Mm-hmm. I use a huge amount of analogy uh, to the point that the kids joke with me about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that you really have to sort of uh, assess um, a lot of those uh, aspects of your own teaching and your own communication style when put in a situation like that. Did you find any any jokes just like falling on deaf ears? <laughs> no, no, there was it was all everything was a big hit. <laughs> You you're a former comedian. Yeah, that's we were talking before. You you've you've done some stand up. Uh, yes. You, yep. You it, you know what it's like to have jokes that fall on deaf ears. I'm sure. So oh, yeah. Well, you're assuming a lot, but okay. Um, uh, yeah. No. Uh, when I was in college at, at University of Oklahoma, I got into stand up. They had a, a a University of Oklahoma stand up comedy contest uh, for the campus, and I and then you, all you needed was a tight five five minutes. That's all you needed. I was like, all right, all right, I can do this. And so I, I got up and did it and and I won the thing. And I was like, I think at the time, you know, this would have been like, I don't know, 1991 or 92. And they gave you a hundred dollars, a hundred US dollars. And I and I, did, I was like, I just got a hundred dollars for five minutes of work. This is the best <laughs> thing ever. And it wasn't even really work. This is awesome. Uh, so um, I ended up... Uh, going to open mic nights, you know, in, in Oklahoma city where they would just have nights where anyone could get up and, and do their thing. And, uh, and I was, I told you this and, and I always tell my students, um, you know, that there's nothing they can do on the podium that will, that they will feel more foolish than me. Uh, because as a, as a, as a 19 year old kid, uh, run, who I was not old enough to legally enter the, uh, the comedy club, they had to sneak me in the back. Uh, and then I, I, I remember one of the first times I, and here's Chad Nicholson, and, and I, there was a, a small stage, a lot of inebriated uh, Oklahoma cowboy types uh, there, and, and there was a small step to get up in the stage, and of course I didn't see it. And so I went, you know, it was really, in my mind, I was like, I was flying, I was Superman for a moment, uh, and then I was not, uh, I was not. Uh, and so I went, I face planted really basically on the stage, I popped up. And I just went in right into my routine and I, I, and it went just fine. And the thing is the world didn't crack open. I was okay. They were okay. The people were like, whatever, this idiot. And I was like, yep, that's me. And I still got a few laughs out of them. Uh, and, and so what I've learned over time is on the podium, off the podium, man, we are all human and you know, you do something, it might not land and that's okay. The world's not going to crack open. 
you know, one of my colleagues always says, there's no such thing as a banned emergency. I think I have seen a couple actually as a teacher uh, that involve loss of digits. Um, but uh, I'd call that a banned emergency. But but really the things we do, it's like, hey, it's okay. It's okay. And and that that allowed me to feel like I could get up and so what? If I do this gesture, if I do this, if I say this, I mean, I, as long as I'm not offending anyone, um, I may step off the podium and say, that didn't work out so well. And I still do. I say, okay, I need to always be looking for new tools and new ideas to reach this group of people. We always have to teach the band that's in front of us. Mr. Kramer is my mentor at Indiana University. I was his last doctoral student, uh, Ray Kramer, uh, uh, mm. before he retired. He always tells me I drove him out of the business. Um, but <laughs> you know, he would say, you got to teach the band in front of you. You don't teach the band that that you know you wish that someday you have. You just do the gestures. You know, you got to teach the band in front of you. So it really uh, taught me a lot. And now I'm basically, you know, it's it's better now because I can do the same routines almost. And, and I have a captive audience. See, they can't leave because I give them a grade. It's, it's perfect. Uh, they're stuck there with me, no matter what. It's like, Hey, you got me for an hour and a half. So buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it does sound like it would like, it's almost like a perfect training ground, uh, you know, for, for a young up and coming, uh, band director. <laughs> yeah. It beats you down pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nothing, you know, you have that, you have the thing that you, uh, well, and, and actually I use a lot of analogies for my uh, conducting students. For example, mm. one of the, one of the best things I remember from doing comedy, and I had met a few of the big comedians at the time and I had seen Seinfeld and Jay Leno and these guys, uh, as I was, uh, at that age. And, uh, one thing that Steve, I think it was Steve Martin said that, um, you know, when he went on stage, he would, he would have 10 jokes and maybe only one would actually end up being funny. And so fine. The next week you keep that one, you do 10 more and maybe one more will be funny. Now you got two. And then the next week, maybe you've got three. And by the time you've done it for a few years, you got two hours of stuff that you know is funny anywhere. And I think about this all the time as a conductor. You know, people will ask, well, where did you learn to this? Where did you learn to that? It's like, I messed up a lot. And I kept the stuff that worked. And it's not like I just invented all this one day. Most of it is stolen or stolen and adapted uh, because I saw it work. And it's that sense of, you know, you got to fill that, that your tool belt and it just takes time. It takes a lot of making mistakes. And I feel comfortable saying I've made most of them. Not all. Uh, I'm working on it. I I was taught to play jazz in exactly the same way. I was like, just try a lick out. See if it works. If it doesn't work, you know, put it put it to bed. Try it out again sometime. Yeah. Keep the stuff that does work. Try to reuse it. Try to maybe build on it. Um, and it is. It's one of these like, uh, you know, being in front of a band. Um, yes, and and you would know this certainly more than I do because you are responsible for teaching conducting, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but actually that that confidence of being in front of you know twenty people, a hundred people that's something that you just have to get experience at. Um, even if you are technically proficient, uh, just being in front of people is just something you have to just, you have to, you know, do, to go back to that comedy room, you have to die on your feet a few times. You really do. And and it never <laughs> goes away. I mean, you know, I still have my, my wife, we've been married, well, here in December, it'll be 26 years. So she's seen me through all this stuff. Uh, and uh, she has no problem letting me know. Uh, yeah, that was, whew. Ooh, maybe keep looking or I'll spring some, Hey, you know, anytime I do like, I'm, I'll be asked to do like a talk. Like we, you know, last one I did was our, Oh, the big marching band kickoff uh, event. 
And they're probably, you know, they're like all the important administrators in the University of Arizona there and the football coach, basketball coach and hundreds of students. And I just get excited because I'm like, all right, here we go. Uh, let's go. And I'll spring some stuff on her. And she's a very, uh, a very good sounding board. I mean, in the, in the moment, I don't, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, but this is, this is perfect, dear. This is the funniest thing ever. And she's like, uh-huh. <laughs> no, it's not like, okay, cool. But she's also comfortable. You know, I'll ask her, she's seen me conduct my entire career and I'll say, Hey, am I still, am I, how's this? And she'll say, no, no, no. You know, see how this, so she's really great that way. It's great to have that honest critic right here in the house all the time, <laughs> right here. <laughs> <laughs> always listening always uh, what about the what about the kids are they they are they as uh, critical of your comedy oh uh, of my comedy oh yes <laughs> yes uh, i got two uh yeah, not your, kids. your comedy <laughs> yes and and it's so funny because when they have friends like uh, last week one of my kids i, I was they both are at go to university of arizona and so i was with her and her friends and her friends had never heard all of my great stuff before and so I, I would start launching into something and she's just like, oh, oh my God. She's like, look, do you have anything else? This again, you know, I've heard this for 21 years. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still good. Still good. That story's still funny. And she's the like, good jokes last time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it does. I, I always think about this with teaching. And when you have like um, uh, a great conductor in our field, you know, who comes and does an honor band, um, whether it's, you know, uh, Gene Corporon or Jerry Junkin or Mr. Kramer or uh, Bob Reynolds, and you see these things just happen almost effortlessly to them. And it becomes like a, a language. Teaching becomes like this language of just like you and I are talking, we're not having to sit and dwell on the next word that we say. We just are, we have an idea or a thought, and we share it. And teaching and conducting, to me, that's the ideal is when you're able to have this as a dialogue and you're, you're not managing a, a group of workers. Uh, you're, you're trying to, you know, I think it was, uh, I think Mallory Thompson um, spoke about management and, and inspiration and, uh, and you're trying to do something with them. I always say that the stick, the stick has no power. You know, it's just a stick. I could give the stick and they could choose to not play. And what could I do? I could say, come on, guys, it, magic words, the three magic words of band. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Or follow it up with care more. Come on, guys, and care more, the magic words of band. Well, if I if I come on, guy, and care more, I'll articulate this better. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so I could give the stick, but it's all, this is just a tool of persuasion, not the pencil, but the stick. Um, and that's all we can do is be great persuaders. And by persuading someone, they, there has to be trust and there has to be a dialogue. So it all does connect for me. You can't win Guardian Leviosa, the, the students, into doing something. All we can do is, is be excellent at, at trust and persuasion and not, not a, a, a demeaning persuasion. You know, the old school, when I was younger and before then, you know, the whole idea of a band director a lot of times was a lot of, a lot of yelling, a lot of intimidation, frankly. Uh, and, and that's certainly, you know... My first year of teaching, I taught middle school at, at Lawton Eisenhower Junior High School in Lawton, Oklahoma. Go Vikings! And uh, and you know, I, I that first semester, I I encountered things. I, I was like, nobody's ever spoken to me this way before. The things they would say to me, these middle school kids, it was 
the the worst things I've ever heard someone say to me. Nobody had spoken to me. And I just got immediately, the heat went up and I just got mad. I, I reacted as though I would react if someone, you know, my, just casually just started saying these horrific things to me. And I responded that way. I remember I raised my voice more that semester than I have ever in my life. And I got to the end of the semester and I was like, I, I absolutely despise this job. Mm-hmm. And the kids despise band. And I thought, you know what? That's on me. So the change has to be not in going with that old school. I'm going to yell until you do it right. There has to be another way. And really, I think the other way you develop more long lasting uh, relationships, I think, with students. And they, you know, it, that's really the point of what we do. And for me, is it's it's really the people in front of us. It's not third trumpet, do this. I mean, it's like, hey, what's that guy? How's he doing today? You know, I mean, that's really why we do it, I think. Yeah, it's, it, it's bringing so many humans together to produce a moment, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, yeah. it, it is so much more than the technical. It is um, learning to work with people and all of their motivations for being in that room at that time, trying mm-hmm. to produce this uh, single piece of music between everyone. Um, it requires... Uh, I, that modern type of because I, I you know I know those old bandmasters uh, they they were yeah. here in Ireland too and you know what did amazing work in their own way sure. at their in their own times but but there is a different generation there and they have a different requirement um you know I teach uh, I teach a lot of very young kids as well as teenagers and some adults I teach mm-hmm. as well um and there is a very different requirement there's a I have to engage with them on their level and if I don't mm-hmm. they don't engage back in any way um and um we've had a very high retention rate in Banaslow in 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 the last two years even over the pandemic and i think a lot of it is to do with the teaching staff that are there where where a lot of us are young parents actually uh, and i think we we get that level of engagement that 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 the new generation, I think the, it's the generation after Gen Z now. I think they're even, they're even younger again than that now. I think it's Generation Alpha or something like that they're called. Um, they have a very different expectation than sure. any other generation before before them. They, they're not going to be just yelled at. They'll just walk away from an activity, just like you say. Yeah. And probably rightfully so. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I don't think that music uh, yelling or, you know, using uh, the intimidation tactic uh, as a as a teaching strategy um, is necessarily, I mean, is, is music really the the goal to, again, it goes back to that, you are a worker in this factory and your, your goal is to create this note at this dynamic at this time. Um, and I will do whatever I have to do to make you do that um, versus, you know, we're actually trying to do something that cannot be done in any other way. And and the, a big problem, I think, is is the, the, that most people can plug into their phone and why would, why would I pay for this piece of music? I can just go listen to it on YouTube. Uh, at, at, and then I've heard it. Why would I go to a concert? Why would I pay $10 to hear the University of Arizona Wind Ensemble play uh, this piece? When If I want to hear it, I plug it on here and, and I can also play video games while I'm doing it. And that's, and that's okay. There's a time and a place for that. But I find that more and more, uh, it's harder to help someone younger understand that it is a different experience that cannot be achieved in any other way. And it, the downside of it is it takes time to be able to experience that. You know, it takes really a few years before, if not more, before they can really experience, we played a concert of this music and it was a piece that I liked. 
And, you know, we are in a, in a, in a, an immediacy uh, kind of society right now. Uh, and so if someone wants to write music, students will just go on an app on their phone or say, I want to, I'll write this, I'll do some, you know, chips, chip tune music or, or whatever. And, and I can do it in 10 minutes and it's going to sound cool. And I have loops that I put on there. And so they, that sense of I'm already making music. Why would I practice this clarinet for three years so that I could play uh, a, an arrangement of a pop tune? Mm. You know, it, it's challenging and it's something that we have not yet figured out. And I am concerned about it. I'm, I'm a big video game game nerd, you know. Oh, me and, too. Uh, games are designed. I love them. I absolutely love them. But game design, um, when you when you sort of look under the hood, is designed for that immediacy. It's designed around not having a player um, fail at something more than uh, is acceptable by the player. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, if you fail two, three times, the game is slowly but surely making itself easier to allow you to get past it. Um, now, there's exceptions to that. There's some uh, some newer games, some of the Souls-based games and so on are... are are much more challenging than previous games. Yeah. Uh, but we we do have that sense of immediacy and, uh, you know, no, not really a barrier, you know, no real challenge um, that's been put in front of us. So then an instrument is put into a child's hand, uh, whether that middle school or maybe even uh, starting later. And all of a sudden... <laughs> that doesn't get any easier the more times you fail <laughs> yeah you know it really doesn't it, it's it's and it's one of the early conversations that i have with parents i i am genuinely that's one of my biggest concerns um when it comes to to some of the younger kids coming through i think in many ways they're going to be a great generation in terms of what they expect in terms of the uh, access to information that they're going to have in terms of the um emotional stability that they have compared to maybe uh, some previous generations but that uh, uh, barrier to challenge I, th I think is probably going to be one of the biggest challenges that we have as educators uh, over the next few years yeah I agree uh, and and I, I'm always looking for ways to somehow uh, you know it, it's how do we keep what we do so relevant culturally in the larger society uh, that it's it's more just an expectation that learning an instrument is is part of what you do growing up because it, it enhances not only your life but your perspectives and lets you hear other voices. Um, and I'm always asking my students, you know, uh, telling them, you know, uh, what I would like to someday be able to do is have concerts where prior to the concert, someone we've we've come up with a mobile game that everyone in the audience, you know, as they're coming in, sitting down, waiting for the concert, they download and they play a little bit of it and. And it could be some a very simple mobile game, but the, we somehow use the themes of one of the pieces we're playing. Let's say we're doing some Granger, and do da 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 da. You know, we just have a loop of that's affiliated with different characters. So by the time it's really about context, and then by the time they hear it, they're like, "Oh yeah, that." Uh, or or somehow have a wind band be a uh, uh, the, the medium for a video game soundtrack. I've talked about this many times, uh, or a movie soundtrack. I think it could could be something that's that would work uh, and could be relevant. Um, it goes back to uh, uh, when I lived in the East Coast, I took my kids, they were much younger, took them to Philadelphia to hear the Philadelphia Orchestra play a concert of Legend of Zelda music one year, Pokemon music one year. And I was not excited about this. I was like, oh man, it's going to be just a bunch of people there with their 3DSs out and it's going to be a, a wreck. So I showed up, I was, I was proven so wrong and I'll never forget. I showed up and people are dressed all like 
in Pokemon stuff. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Everyone had their 3DSs out and there was no uh, recording played, you know, at the beginning of the concert of someone saying, please turn off your cell phones. Nothing like that. The, the music started and, and I fully expected every phone and 3DS to be on. And I, I hate that. I guess, oh, this is going to be so annoying. Just click, 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 click all across the place. And I looked around the entire hall. I was looking for it. Not one of them was open. Every, every person in there was on the edge of their seat from the first note. And I thought, ah, interesting. Not that we should all always play video game music necessarily, but what is it? It's context. They know the context of they, that music pushes a button in them that makes them feel something and they are thirsty for it. And these are people who largely, I suspect, had never been to a professional orchestral concert before in their lives. Nobody had to tell them to be quiet. They were 100% attentive. Isn't it funny how, you know, as 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 humans, as people, as society, we 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 tend to forget the things that were successful in the past? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. what you're speaking about is the idea of an overture. You know, it's mm-hmm. introducing the themes of the performance we're about to experience. It's something that we don't really do. I mean, outside of sort of that, you know, uh, musical theater and uh, operatic sort of world, we don't really do that. But but you're absolutely right. If people understand and, and have an idea of the themes before they go in, maybe, maybe we're just, maybe we kind of feel as... Um, you know, trained musicians sometimes that we shouldn't need that, that we should be able to walk into a room and listen to a brand new symphony that we've never heard before and immediately understand and inherently uh, get what the composer is doing. And I, I, I'll be honest, I, I don't think I've ever been like that. I, I, I like to sort of understand the themes that I'm, that I'm listening to first. That's and certainly anyone that's new to uh, music, uh, there's, um, a former band member of the band, the Slow Town Band, uh, Emer Noon. Um, she is a video game composer. She she conducted mm-hmm. the Oscars very recently as well. Uh, and she is performing around the world doing video games live. Now, she's doing it with orchestras. Uh, oh, yeah. But it is a hugely popular. It sells, it sells multiple nights in every city of the world that it tours to. And... I think you know why. Why are we constantly ignoring what's successful? <laughs> is it is it just our egos that are you know we don't want to be popular sometimes, but then complain when 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 we're not? <laughs> you know there is the the highbrow lowbrow uh, presumptions about band versus orchestra or concertized music versus mm. video game music is is still very problematic. I, I remember um, one year I sat in on the pit orchestra for the the on in uh, on uh, in Manhattan for uh, Aladdin uh, for the Broadway show uh, and I was sitting in, sitting in the pit not playing <laughs> no just listening uh, <laughs> and I had a good friend who was the woodwind one player there and so he got me in to sit and it was a really amazing experience to have all these fantastic musicians sitting around me and they knew every note. So they play this and they sounded fantastic. And he introduced me to the conductor afterwards. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, yeah, this is Chad Nicholson. He's uh, I was just getting ready to come here, University of Arizona, a director of bands. And the conductor took this uh, approach of immediately like, oh, she said, well, you know, it's it's music theater. So, you know, and I said, I said, are you kidding me? I told her, I said, you have completely full audiences, ravenous screaming with delight at every show. There's no, it's just musical theater. It's it's performing music that people are paying lots of money and happily doing it and enjoying and will probably remember for the rest of their lives. So 
I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm giving you all of my adoration here because this is, this is not just anything. And, and that's the thing is, you know, when we do things, I think in the spring, uh, you, the university of Arizona went ensemble, we're going to do music of studio Ghibli movies and Miyazaki movies. Cool. But then we're also bringing in, um, we have an East Asian studies uh, uh, department at the University of Arizona and bringing in those faculty to, in between pieces to talk about, give context, to talk about the the characters, the myths, the spirituality behind each of them. And then, you know, we're, we're, I've reached out, there's a there's a, a, a taiko drum group in Tucson. They're going to come in and perform. There's a, a kabuki dance troupe in Tucson. They're going to come in and perform. And we're going to try to get a food truck, a Japanese food truck out front. So that the whole idea is, oh, and, and then elementary school, there's a Japanese elementary school. We're going to be showing their their art and the lobbies that come in. So basically, we're trying to give huge amounts of context. And then we're going to also play some music by like um, Ito and some um, standard classical Japanese composers so that they can come in and feel like, okay, I'm not just hearing music. Okay, that's music from a Japanese composer. All right, I guess I get it. But they're coming and going, ah. This element of the culture, art, music, food, which is an important part, I think, of context, uh, folk music for them, which would be like the taiko drums and and the kabuki dancers, uh, and it and so I think that this is really our uh, one of the ways that we could be doing a little bit better job of saying, well, okay, we're not playing the Hinema Symphony at that concert, okay, we're not playing Persichetti at that concert, okay, we have to, I think, let be able to say that's important music, but. We also have a service to connect with human beings here. And and like, I mean, you of all people are, are someone that's not trying to say that we shouldn't be celebrating our band repertoire. And I want to talk to you a little <laughs> bit about that. I mean, yeah. you, you know, what a segue, by the way. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, you, you've written a book about the top 100 works for grade four, five and six. It, so you're, you're not trying to say that there's no place for that. You're just trying to Correct. say that... Um, context i love that i i think that's a great great way to say that it's all about context isn't it and even these top 100 works that you've you've written about in your book um there's a way to present them in context one of my favorite examples um of of that actually is i think it was dallas wind symphony uh did Mm -hmm. it but they did a a night at, at downton abbey uh, and it was Holtz and Hindemith oh, and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, others uh, from from that sort of early twentieth uh, century, and and it was it was perfect. What a what a great way to give that context, and it, it just goes to show you that there, you know, you can pretty much take. I'd imagine every piece that you have in the book that you're about to tell me about now, uh, and <laughs> uh, and and put context to it, surely. Absolutely. Um, uh, an example is uh, probably one of the most powerful performances of my career from an, a personal emotional standpoint was Music for Prague uh, by Husa. And uh, I did it here at Arizona. And um, what we did was uh, it, we performed it. But pr- prior to the performance, as everyone was coming in, I printed out a full size front page replica a copy of, oh, I can't remember, the New York Times or something like that from that outlined that invasion, uh, the the entire event. So everybody's coming in, they're reading their newspapers. Then um, before it started, uh, we took out the house lights and I showed, I had found some really good uh, news clips from the era uh, with video and voiceover and some powerful imagery um, that, you know, Husa, I remember him at Midwest, you know, talking about these experiences. And so letting them just see it, 
And then it just went fade to black. And, and as the house lights came up, we started that. I got chills just <laughs> telling how I started that first note of music for Prague. And our lighting technician had also come in not to do like really uh, obvious or brazen lighting, but just very subtle uh, stage effects for each movement that ended up being very red, you know, kind of went through because it became more intense with the music. Uh, the 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 third movement with uh, the percussion, you know, the snare is playing on its own and the snare was elevated and we had put just a little bit of lighting underneath the snare drum aiming up. So the snare drum just glowed just a little bit. So I didn't want it to be like, hey, hey, we have lights. Um, but I want it to be uh, add context to say, you've read the paper, you're putting yourself in the mindset, you're hearing the voices, you're seeing the images, and, and now we just start. And even today, uh, two weeks ago, a student put on Facebook that that was, uh, she is, has left uh, many years past and said that's her favorite memory of ever being in band ever. And uh, so, yeah, for any of the pieces in the top 100 or beyond, um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to show video. Sometimes people will just show slides while they're playing stuff. And I always try to think if the composer were alive or if they are alive, uh, if they're alive, I ask them, by the way, uh, if I'm going to do anything extra musical, but if they're not alive, I really try to say, is this, am I doing something that is just to add stuff for the sake of adding stuff? Or is this really going to provide someone a little extra context and appreciation? But that, that's the approach I take. Because we are, we're missing an opportunity to engage um, a very dominant sense um, in in sight. If if we don't at least consider the the possibility of adding something in, and and I get your point. I I I you know I I've done that. I've done the whole uh, putting a, putting up a slide slideshow during during yeah, during oh, a piece. Me too. You know, um, and and I. You know, but I do. I, I absolutely take your point. I think you do need to ask yourself: Is it is it adding is it adding context? I I, I remember we we had a we had a performance of the Lord of the Rings Symphony, um, uh, mm-hmm. Maze, uh, yeah. where we had extracts written uh, uh, read out between movements. Um, nice. And, uh, Johan watched it a live stream of it at the time uh, as well. He seemed happy happy enough with it. But I think that gave real context to that. Most of our audience weren't had never been at a wind band concert before mm-hmm. you know they they weren't so to, to give that context to re to hear about shadow facts before we played the music yeah to okay. hear about the journey through moria uh it just uh, brought that concert to life uh mm-hmm. and and i think you know um I, i'd love to see some interesting ideas around that uh, and you know if people have uh, concerts that they've done and and have some interesting context to to the to the pieces that they've played. Uh, certainly, uh, email Keith at globalbandroom.com. I'd love to hear about some some more of these. Um, tell me about that book though, Chad. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you you must have been um, and and I've I've had that book myself and I've given it to a, a student in the past and um, that's I know it's done the rounds here um, in in the Midlands of Ireland uh, <laughs> through a few hands over the years. Um, tell me a little bit about it and and the work that you put into it. Uh, so that book came about uh, again, just like a lot of the other stuff I've done. Is I, I felt ignorant uh, and naive about what the standard repertoire really was. That would have been. I really started thinking about it as a high school teacher. I taught in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, for four years, uh, and right outside of Portland. And I remember, um, you know, when you go through college, I mean, you have the music you played as a public school student, 
you go to college, you have the music you played in college, but that's not really music by and large you can program when you're out teaching public school. And at the time, you know, there was no resource for what is the conventionally accepted core repertoire of the wind band. The, the only thing, there had been the, a few surveys. Uh, Jay Gilbert had done a survey from Doan College in uh, Nebraska. Uh, and it, I think that would have been in the early 90s. Uh, but it was really about um, artistic merit. They were ranking, there was a survey of important conductors ranking on artistic merit. And I thought, okay, that's one thing. But again, a lot of those pieces I can't do. What if I just said, I, I want to put together for me a resource that tells me, hey, these are the pieces that in our, in our business, in our genre of music are conventionally accepted as we ought to. And that was the question I posed to all of those um, conductors. We ought to be playing, we should be playing programming on a regular basis. And it's a little dated, I think now. I mean, it really could use a, a, an update. There is a new edition coming out uh, that is a translation into Mandarin um, for, uh, that will be distributed across Asia. But, um, but still, it's not updated in terms of, uh, it would take, I think the challenge is, okay, who would the new panel be? Several of the people are on that panel are no longer with us. Um, and several are, uh, um, who, you know, maybe are retired. Maybe they're not really doing a lot of conducting anymore. Some of them are doing a lot of conducting. Uh, but uh, the question is, is, okay, what would that panel be like? And then what is the question we're really going to pose? That's the hardest part was saying, what is the question I really want them to answer? And from that, uh, I, it really came out, I think there were 98 pieces. There was a natural curve, a natural line, uh, 98 pieces. And then there were two pieces that got uh, several write-ins. And so that took it to a nice round 100, which the publisher really liked. Uh, and uh, and so uh, it ended up being, the publisher was really excited about it. It ended up being my doctoral dissertation project at Indiana. Uh, and uh, and I put the musical themes in there because there was there is a, a book for orchestra that was written in the 50s. I can't. Uh, uh, a book of musical themes, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." It was all orchestral musical themes, all their orchestral first movement, second movement. And I remember asking a, a professor at Indiana, "Well, is there one for wind band?" And she looked at me and said, "What's wind band?" No, she looked at me and said, "No, I don't think so." And so I was like, "Well, you know, this way when I'm it was, again for me, if I'm sitting there going, now wait, is that tune from the whole first suite or second suite? Which movement? You know." And my dream at the time, and this would have been in mid 2000s, the technology was not there, but I wanted people to be able to somehow sing it. It sounded very sci-fi at the time, sing it to their computer and have their computer analyze the themes that I put in. And like, if they're like, oh, what's this tune? Could they sing it and have the computer tell them you're singing this movement of this piece? Now that would probably be no problem. Google probably already has me beat on that. But at the time I was like, Oh, this could be so cool because I re- I literally would sit as a my first few years of teaching public school and go oh, I don't know I have decent you know clarinets but maybe my horns aren't so good this year and this and this and and so I put in there just the stuff that I thought I needed soloists who are the soloists looking there say oh okay well no we can't do that one this year or yeah this is perfect and I think I put in the book things like I put mild suggestions I don't ever want to dictate what kind of group should be playing what kind of piece, but say, hey, this one works great for a, a second band at a, I don't know, at a university or an honor band uh, setting or, you know, or this is a slow, beautiful piece that works great for, you know, to Kelly Shenandoah works great for every, every age group, every level, uh, college included, um, you know, and just, I wrote it for myself because that it didn't exist. Yeah. And 
Um, and it's interesting now people use it more, I think, I don't know, people use it for college classes. Uh, but also a lot of people use it as a source of program notes, uh, which, um, wasn't really the goal of the book. It wasn't a program notes book. I mean, it's great, you know, use it for, you know, uh, I get a, I get a, a $1.99 for every book sold book. So I guess if that does it, I can buy my kids a cheeseburger. Um, <laughs> buy it. but, um, I, but at, you know, it, it was, it actually cost money to make cause I had to pay personally pay for all the rights for all of those musical and chippets. Uh, and some of those at the time, um, Gosh, one of the pieces, not the Dolson Vignetta, uh, one of the pieces, I can't remember which off the top of my head, had no, nobody owned it at the time. It'll come to me as soon as the podcast is done. Um, and I remember thinking, if I, I was a poor grad student, I thought, if I remember thinking, time, if I had the money, I'd buy the rights to this. You know, I just, this would be my piece. <laughs> just for no other reason than if anyone ever wanted to, you know, march it, they'd have to get licensing from me. Um uh, so, um, uh, but it was, that was one of the more challenging parts. So it, it cost, it was an investment, mm-hmm. uh, certainly, but, uh, I have no regrets and it really did propel. It's something that's propelled me throughout my career, you know, to come back to repertoire, uh, cause that's the voice that is our cultural voice. Uh, that is, that's, that's a way we speak. And mm-hmm. so if a new composer comes up and does something, it's like, we might initially go, well, that's kind of odd, or I don't know if I like how this goes. But that's good because what we like is usually based upon what we've heard. That's this box. So we got to keep feeding that, make that box larger so we can see what other voices are out there and be more diverse in our programming. It was certainly a a, a great stepping off point for me in terms of exploring new repertoire um, and, 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 you know, what scores should I study? What, 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 what is the music that my band might play in a number of years time when they're, you know, a little bit more advanced. Uh, it, it gave me that a, a great, a great start with, with, with exploring um, new music. At least it was new music to me. Um, do you think you'll ever revisit and, and do a second edition? Um, do you think, would you ever explore a grade one, two and three? <laughs> well, that's the question I've been asked ever since that book was released. And I looked into it and the, the real challenge for me is, is really one, uh, first comes down to who would be the people evaluating that? Um, I, I had a lot more context and connection with the people in the cover of the four, five and six book. Uh, but someone who is more immersed in that repertoire and in the, those conductors and, and ensembles would probably be better qualified. Honestly, I just felt unqualified. Um, I mean, I've heard of, well, there's this person and this person, and Cheryl Floyd would be great and this person. Um, but it, when it comes down to it, I, I didn't feel comfortable with my own ability to determine who the, the, the right people would be. And, and, you know, my familiarity with the music is definitely it's a, as I don't really operate with that level of group now. Um, someone ought to do it. I should probably force one of my doctoral students to say, "Here's your dissertation." <laughs> uh, but it, it it is a need, and um, you know, it it I probably won't. I just don't feel qualified to do it. I I I think that there are probably a lot more qualified people out there. The problem is, is that people who are immersed in that world probably don't have a ton of time to take on a project like that because it's <laughs> all true. consuming. It's all consuming. 
Well, I mean, the one thing is, uh, you know, I think 2021, um, 2022, almost at this point, um, we live in a time where I think that that grade one to three level is at a much higher standard than it's ever been before. We have some of the great composers writing at that level now at the moment, you know, uh, like uh, some people that have been featured regularly on um on on the repertoire happy hour people like brian balmages and randall standridge and kate Mm mishmore and these people are just writing the most exquisite music and then Mm -hmm. you find out wait that's a grade one uh so i think now's you know now's maybe the time to do that you know uh to to to, um to to have that that done so maybe if it's not by chad nicholson maybe it's by one of the listeners on the uh on the show or do it somebody maybe one of those doctoral students that you uh, (laughs) that you force a project on um it's it's so many things I want to to talk to you about, um, Chad. But uh, before we move on to our off the rostrum section, I want to talk to you a little bit about Midwest. Um, sure. It's coming up really soon. Uh, hopefully, actually, by the time that you're listening to this podcast, it may be actually happening even as we speak. Um, tell me, uh, is Midwest something that you still try to attend most years? Uh, if it is, what are your best tips and tricks? that are uh, something that people don't normally think about that they should be doing when they, when they head to Midwest. Yeah. Um, I, I have gone for years and years. I did not go last year. Uh, and I decided to not go this year, just, you know, I think we were talking before we started recording that, mm-hmm. you know, at least in Arizona, our numbers are, are still not, not, not going in a downward direction for COVID. Um, it's really unfortunate, but yeah, I've, at university of Arizona has had a booth there. Um, and you know, it's, it's, even before I was here, though, it was definitely uh, a can't miss kind of event. Um, and it's interesting. It's changed, you know, over the years because it used to be over um, on uh, what is it? Michigan Avenue there. Uh, and and it's moved over to McCormick's place. And it's interesting because it really changed. It changed the dynamic of the event a bit. Uh, in some ways, it's great because you have a, we now have this huge space and there are actual like places there's a, you can get some some lunch right there. Um, the downside is, is it's, it's, you really have to take a, 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 either a taxi or an Uber or Lyft or something to get downtown. If you want to get some pizza, which you got to do, got to go get your obligatory slice of pizza. And, and that's great. Or walk around the giant silver jelly bean, or, uh, you know, uh, there, uh, I mean, that it's just that stuff you have to do. Um, but it's just not quite a, as convenient in that way, but it's a, it's a nice large space. I've presented at twice at Midwest, once in the old hotels, once in the, in the new setup. Uh, and, um, the new setup is definitely easier as a presenter because you have greater access to the technological stuff that, that you need. Um, and, uh, and if anyone's interested in presenting, by the way, I encourage you to put in for it and do it. Uh, it's a great experience. Um, there is, there are some things, you know, as a presenter, you are, I remember in the old hotels, I actually had to pay, uh, you know, a union, a union person to just plug in my, my laptop into the power outlet, um, you know, things like that. So you do run into those sorts of things, but it, it is a terrific experience. Uh, and, and really you have nothing to lose. I always encourage people that if you have an idea and you have kind of over your life and career, you've seen things that, you know, this could actually be helpful. I've, I, it goes back to making mistakes. I've made this mistake so many times. I figured it out. I, I'm going to pass this on to other people and maybe they'll benefit from it. Uh, it is a great time. Um, as far as tips and tricks, so let's see here. Coffee. Now look, I mean, I, you know, you want to get coffee right there where it's nice and easy, just in the main hall. 
you know, any of us who've been there, that line, especially you get to the hot times. I mean, you're going, look, all right, you got, what is it? The Hyatt, you have some hotels that are just attached. You got the, 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 and this is breakfast too. Uh, if you're, if you want to grab now, you know, a lot of people just grab like it's, it's conference food, right? It's conference eating. So it's like, ah, oh, grab my muffin and coffee and slice and, of cheese and, pizza. And, eat and, and, you know, and you have to, you're trying to eat the most crumbly thing. You've got like your suit on, you know, and it, it's all over your face and, oh no, Bob Reynolds saw me with crumbs on my face. What am I going to do? <laughs> uh, but if you just go down to the hot, walk over to Hyatt and anyone can walk down that hallway, go over there and you can pick up coffee. You know, I know this is a weird thing to say, but it's like, you know, I've actually gone, I've actually decaffeinated myself over COVID after, you know, a quarter of a century of, every morning and every afternoon, you know, um, but I still like the taste of, you know, and I'm still going to walk over there and, and get my little de- decaf coffee. Um, but, um, but things like that, because those lines and lunch as well uh, is, is extremely challenging. There's insufficient amount of seating uh, mm-hmm. for um, the number of people who have that lunch break, which is like everyone. <laughs> I mean, you've basically got the entire conference saying to someone they, they haven't seen for a year saying, Hey, you want to go grab lunch? Oh, okay, man, let's go grab lunch. And you go there and you'll be lucky if you can sit at all, if not sit too. So uh, I would suggest it's kind of like going to like Disney World. Um, try to get lunch at an odd time mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's just going to make things a lot easier. It makes it more likely you won't miss the thing that you want to see after lunch. Um, also, you know, as a presenter, if you, I don't know, do they do, they don't do handouts much anymore. They're probably going to do it all on PDF. I imagine definitely this year. I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have to worry about like in the old days, it was like people who just walk in as you're presenting, walk in, grab the handout and just walk right out. And it's like, you're welcome. All right. Bye. I'm, 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 I'm much better than that, but I can, really, I can do, I can dance, whatever you need. Um, but I would say that for people, when you're going to the presentations, my tip would be um, a lot of us are teachers. And so we go into teachers meeting mode, faculty meeting mode when we go to these and we sit as far back as possible or yeah. as far away from other people as humanly possible. Now there is a pandemic. Okay. I get that. Um, pandemic aside, let's pretend there's not one. Go to the front and sit down there next to other people. I promise you it's better. You will end up talking to someone who, uh, it, this happens to me at every concert or every conference, at the concerts. That's a big one. Oh, we'll talk about concerts too. But the a big ones, you sit down and you're like, you will talk to them. And all of a sudden, it's someone from some school, somewhere you've never heard of, and they're having the same problems you are. And there's this sense of camaraderie and you say, hey, what, what are you on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter? And all of a sudden you've got another contact that you can go to. And that is what I think people tend to miss. They go into that mode of I'm going to sit over here and, and not ask any questions, you know, sit up front and and it's more fun. It's it's more fun and it's better for the presenter. And it's it just is a more engaging process. Concerts, as you know, probably the big concerts. Uh, I don't know how they'll do the ticketing for it this year, but in past years, you know, you get like, okay, you have to, when you register, you say, I need a ticket for mm, the Marine band that's going to play at this time and, and just expect big lines and that's okay. Um, it's, it's the Disney expect- world of, of band, isn't it? Like, I think that's if, if you go to it expecting to kind of plan, like you would plan to go to Disney. <laughs> yes. Expect the lines and don't let yourself get frustrated. Your feet will hurt by the end of the day and that's okay. It's part of the process. 
Um, you know, uh, basic stuff like making yourself take breaks, making yourself sit for a while. Um, oh, here's one. If you see some, so <laughs> sorry, I see people more and more like they'll see some, oh, there's, there's, you know, Eric Whitaker, oh, you know, and there's Bob Reynolds. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But you know, what is really interesting It's more interesting than pointing them out is like walking up to them and yeah. saying, hello, is actually okay. Yeah. It's okay. And it's really cool. Um, or if they're at the booths, um, Julie Giroux is the best, you know, you go say hi to Julie Giroux and, and she's the best and, and, or Johan, you know, um, they're, they're right there. Please, uh, engage with them. Again. Mind you, you were talking about the coffee queues. The queue to see yes. Julie Giroux is like the queue to see Santa Claus at a, at a, at a, a large shopping mall nowadays. It's like seeing Bill, William Chatner at a Star Trek convention. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Julie is a superstar at, at it. Uh, and of course, so is, Yo- so is Johan and Johan mo- wears the most amazing, uh, clothes and jackets, uh, yes. you know, so you won't, you won't miss Johan. You all won't six, miss him. Six of them. Uh, but but yeah, let's let's make that a top queue. Start queuing early for Julie Giroux to see. To see. Yeah, really. Get your ticket early. So earlier than the, the Marine Band concert, really. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, when my book came out. It it was distributed by Hal Leonard. It was published by Meredith. It was distributed by Hal Leonard. So I was at. They said, okay, like for new books, hey, be at the Hal Leonard booth during these times, and you'll do like greetings and you know little promotional stuff. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll be happy to do that. So I didn't know though until I got there that. I was at the Hal Leonard booth for the meet and greet along with um, Eric Whitaker, who also had something coming out that year. So there are, I guarantee you, there are cell phones around the world that have pictures of Eric Whitaker with me in the background, (laughs) you know, pushing his hair aside and going, oh, Um, you know, uh, but it's, it's just a great opportunity to humanize all of these people. We play their music, you know. Okay. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about, and we've already talked about some of your non-musical uh, pursuits, uh, Chad, but uh, uh, this this section of the podcast is called Off the Rostrum, and find out about all of those things that you like and dislike and the things that you like to spend your time on outside of the band room. Um, and I'll start with our first question today. Who is your favorite author? Fiction author, let's state, let's, let, let's state that. Okay, let's see. Who is my favorite fiction author? I'm going to have to think about this for a minute. Uh, let's come back to it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we can. <laughs> no problem. Skip. Pass. Um, okay. What is your favorite holiday? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't even... These are things that I never really think about that much. Yeah. Uh, all right. My favorite holiday. Come on, Nicholson. What is it? Uh, we have, uh, I, I'm going to say that I enjoy, I'm going to go with Thanksgiving Yeah. here in the United States, which is upcoming. Uh, it always uh, lands right near my wife's birthday, uh, and I like to give thanks for my wife. Keeps me in the good graces. Um, and, uh, and I think that um, there, it's one of those things that everyone in the family just kind of goes with the tradition. Whereas even with like the winter holidays and Christmas holidays, um, you know, people come and go. But for some reason, Thanksgiving, you know, you kind of have those expectations and um, and it's relaxing and there's always good football on, uh, you know, or, you know, if you're at a university, maybe you're at a game uh, and uh, and it's just a, a relaxing and a, and a needed break. 
you know. Uh, and then you come back and it's just now we, we, I think there's a mental kind of, hey, it's almost Midwest. We're almost to the end of the semester. You know, I'm going to go with Thanksgiving, uh, Alex. Thanksgiving for 100. <laughs> it's a short run then between th- Thanksgiving and, and sort of the finish. Uh, yeah, it gives you that sense yeah. of like, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> um, if you could have a drink or a dinner with a celebrity, dead or alive, who would it be? see a drink with a, a celebrity dead or alive it's going to be probably now this I'll, I'll tell you oh man these are trickier questions than the music question yeah it's so much pressure <laughs> so much pressure uh, I would actually say maybe Jim Henson the creator of the Muppets cool um uh, because, um, you know, anytime I, so that was a big part of growing up. I remember being so excited on the weekends, uh, in the evening when the Muppets came on and, uh, and even now, you know, if I go to Disney and they have their Muppet stuff, uh, I still get a little choked up at some of this stuff. And there was something that was, he took, he, he did something in a way that was very humanizing, uh, but still had humor and could be serious. And I think of teaching, uh, somewhat like this as well. Um, uh, yeah, I think that would be extremely interesting. Probably my number two would be uh, someone like, uh, um, oh, I don't know, Eddie Van Halen or, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, you know, Ingve oh. Malmsteen. Uh. <laughs> nice. Um, what is your favorite type of cheap fast food? Well, now, <laughs> let me tell you, you really can't go wrong. Something I do miss about the East Coast you go to the ocean, you go to the boardwalk, and this is not something we had in other places I lived, but um, um, maybe, I don't know if you call them chips, but uh, a big bucket of French fries. That's all it is, that's your meal, a big bucket of French fries, and they put like, um, oh, some sort of vinegar on there, you know, uh, that is, it's just, for, at first I was like, French fries, that's, that's it? like a giant bucket of french fries and you sit there and you eat your french fries and you have your soda and you're like yeah this is about right yeah. i mean really what was it i saw is that uh french fries must be good for your emotional health because i don't think i've ever been sad while eating them <laughs> that's, that's a great quote you know? <laughs> i think it's a very irish and, and english thing as well as going to the to the chipper as we'd call it here <laughs> you go to the chipper and get your bag of chips with salt and vinegar on it and that's uh, it yeah yeah oh man yeah. just particularly in the, right the port towns you know like lots like like in hose and galway and uh different different dock towns like uh, around our around the British Isles. Well, we got to go on a. I got to come out there and do a chip tour. You know what? That would be a fantastic tour. I, All I, right. I got to put an itinerary together with that. Chips and brew. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> what makes you really mad? Oh man, when uh, uh, easy. You see, I immediately go to that one. <laughs> um, so I, I get, I will say, frustrated when. Um, at least in what I do in my job, and that, that is when when people do not do what they have shown they can do. Hmm. When when you, for example, if the if the ensemble, if players are not performing in a way or, or handling themselves in a manner where they've demonstrated that they're perfectly capable of doing it, and I guess I hold a lot of people outside of the band room to that standard as well. Um, you know, it, it, if if someone is 
has a capability to do something, to do to, to do the right thing or, you know, to manage a situation a certain way. I mean, we all make mistakes and that's not really what this is about. I mean, we all make mistakes. But um, that I tell the ensemble that, you know, I very rarely, uh, I never raise my voice, you know, in, in now. Um, uh, I, they, they'll tell me they can always see if I'm disappointed. I've really, too bad with the masks because I've really mastered the art of the corner of the mouth, you know. <clears throat> You know, and they respond to that. For the audio listeners, that was an excellent disappointment. Yeah. You know, it was a little, and they don't, they don't see that now. They just see this. So I've lost all my superpowers. But um, it's that sense of, all right, you know, are, is it a, is it in a matter of ability? Is it a decision that you're making? Is it just that you're not fully engaged? I think what it is is if you're going to, I always tell the students, if you're going to have the audacity to make noise on an instrument that invades people's ears, I mean, really, short of them doing this, people have to. They're at our mercy. If you don't have the audacity to do that, then you have to have the integrity to say every second I make that sound, it is going to be the best possible sound that can come out of this instrument. And and I know we're human, so we're not robots. We don't just make good sound all the time. Uh, but it's it, it comes to that point. If we're going to have the audacity it, to trumpets, you know, I, I meant to say when I when I worked the first time I worked with a Japanese band, and they all took out their instruments to warm up at Japanese uh, high school, uh, and and. I was sitting there in the in the in the seats of the auditorium, seeing them, and the first thing the trumpets did—the first thing, not even like eight five one, no no no, first thing, trying to ooh, ooh trying to high high note each other. Oh, the the, mid, was the, like, mid, the Midwest, Midwest trumpeter, yeah, that's that? That, that Midwest trumpeter, that Midwest clinic oh. trumpeter that has been there for years, still trying to yeah. to get that note. <laughs> and and it's just and, and they all started trying to out out high note each other, and I'm like, some things are universal. You know, right. so it's true. I mean, we're, we're not we're human beings, but some things are universal. You know, the trumpets are going to try to high note, outnote each other. You know, trombones, they can gliss and they're going to let you know they can gliss. And that's OK. <laughs> it's fun. But it's like, yep, even middle school, high school, college trumpet players, which I am. You know, as I say, I, I'm, I'm a reformed trumpet player. You can uh, I never was a high out. note person. <laughs> I was more the low note guy. Anything one, two, three, I, I, I had. You, I was, I was the, the minute man of the low F sharp. Tell me now, you're not allowed to back out of this question, uh, like some uh -oh. of my guests have. Um, and this is the last question: uh, What do you sing at karaoke? Oh man, uh, this one's gonna the the best experience I have ever had singing karaoke would be um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody with <laughs> other musicians, and we were on a trip. Uh, 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 with a, an athletic band and we were in the middle of nowhere uh, gosh some midwestern town that was like en route to somewhere and we were and there was this little bar of locals and they had karaoke and so we walk in and we're like hey, let's do Bohemian Rhapsody and man did it work I mean it's it wasn't Queen in our, in our minds it was <laughs> you know in our minds it was like I believe that's better than Freddie Mercury. Thank you, but uh, it was—it was like the right things were happening, and the people in this in this bar in the middle of nowhere just kind of—it was—it was right out of a comedy movie where they're all looking at each other, going, what, "What's going on? What is this?" But if if I could, if I were around musicians, that would be my number one. Uh, let's go up and do Bohemian Rhapsody because it's kind of designed for for music nerds. I mean, it really is. You know, it, it really is. You can sing. You can sing your own parts, and you can you can you can show people what you've learned in all of those years of performance. <laughs> yes, 
Uh, and maybe on the fiction writer, I might go Dr. Seuss, by the way. Um, I might go Dr. Choice. Seuss. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting choice. I didn't want to leave you hanging on that. I know that, that <laughs> everybody's on pins and needles with that one. Exactly. Well, listen, Chad, it's been great getting to know you. Um, hey, you ab- too, man. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, after all these years, great to actually get a get a conversation in. Um, Chad, if people want to find out more about you and the work that you're up to and uh, more information about the Honours Band that's coming up and, uh, and, and other events, how can they do that? Yeah, um, I think uh, I sent you some links. Maybe in the show notes, you can have some links to our Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram. Um, uh, and you can reach me at any of those places, uh, as well as the University of Arizona uh, uh, website, uh, music.arizona.edu. It's also the music uh, website. Um, yeah, the Honor Band is an online audition, so it's open to anyone in the world. I mean, we've had people from all over the place come uh, and do that. Uh, and um, also be on the lookout. I'll send you the information, but any day now, we've got an album uh, that's going to be released from the Wind Ensemble. Uh, it's called uh, Joy and Monsters. It's the music of Joel Love. Uh, Joel Love is is a fairly uh, new and up-and-coming composer who uh, I heard his music, where I discovered him, I was, for some reason, looking at music of a of a saxophone conference and on YouTube. And this group was playing this really cool sax ensemble piece. And I, and it really spoke to me in every way uh, that like someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, I was a shredder. I, sh- I shredded, man. I had a, a beautiful mullet. And I had, the, I had the, the best mullet in all of Oklahoma. And that's saying something in the <laughs> 80s and 90s. And, uh, and every, it just pushed all the right buttons. It wasn't like 80s music. It just pushed all the right buttons. And I, was, I sent him a message. I said, could you write this for Wind Ensemble? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it if you play it. I said, all right, not only I play it, but we'll record Damn. it. So we did that. And then another piece for a sax concerto uh, featuring, we have this like ridiculous, uh, amazing sax player at our uh, sax teacher here, Eddie Goodman. Uh, and so um, I'll send you info on that. That should be dropping pretty soon. Um, and that goes to the one of the conductor, you know, one of the, one of the composers that, that I think people should be looking for uh, coming down the pike. It's pretty good stuff. Well, Chad, it's been absolutely great having you. There will be links to all of these um, uh all, all of these items all of these events there'll be links to the uh, album to the book uh, there'll even be links to the win bands of every flavor podcast win bands still, of every flavor which is still on um which is still on apple Podcasts. you can still go and listen to what freely available 2010 so you can hear like. my youthful youthful and uncynical voice <laughs> unto the world uh, so you'll find all of those in the show notes at globalbandroom.com um, or on your podcast catcher of choice. Uh, Chad, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, best of luck with the rest of the uh, year and uh, thank you. Thanks, Keith. This is a lot of fun. It's really great to talk to you. Thanks, Chad. Thank you so much again for joining me and my guests in the band room this week. I'll be back next episode talking to more great guests from around the band world, so head over to wherever you get your podcast from and make sure you subscribe. If you've enjoyed the episode, maybe even leave us a review and share it with your band buddies. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom and on our website, globalbandroom.com. Until next time, I'll see you back in the band room.